Good morning. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, but we're going to be actually, our text for uh, this morning is Daniel chapter 1. Thanks to Mr. Henry for tackling those Semitic and uh, Persian names. Um, and we're going to also be in, in, in uh, Psalm 137. So we're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, our first reading is 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. This is God's word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective are unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to understand this portion of his word which speaks to us of God's enabling grace for us to live faithfully. Now, if you would, uh, put a marker in Daniel chapter one because that's where we're going to be. But turn... Briefly, or look in your bulletin, it's in the sermon notes listed there, to Psalm 137. And as you're doing that, let me ask uh, young theologians uh, uh, with mom and dad's permission that you draw a great multitude, a, a host of people, big people, little people, young people, older people, and this host, this multitude of people are all leaning, facing in one direction. And then on the other side, one single solitary person who is leaning in the opposite direction toward this host. And hopefully you'll understand what I'm talking about uh, in just a few minutes. But if you're there with me in Psalm 137, the story of Daniel's life that we're going to look to in Daniel chapter 1 was written at exactly the same time as the words of Psalm 137. The psalm begins this way in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And then in verse three, there our captors asked 
us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of mirth. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the response of some of God's people expressed in verse four is this, how? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in a place of alienation? And this was the setting of Daniel chapter one. Daniel one. Daniel chapter one is where we are. In the days of the exile of which Babylon had had overcome and destroyed Jerusalem as we read there, as, as Mr. Henry read to us, and Daniel and his companions and many others were taken as young men into, into the country of Babylon and in, into the service of the mighty king of Babylon. In those days, when all those captives only knew all that they knew, all that was familiar, all that was precious to them, their families, their nation, their cities, their villages, the temple where they worshiped, all those things were now utterly ruined. In those days, that was the cry of God's children. In days like this, how, how is it possible for us to faithfully and confidently bear witness to the saving and keeping work of Jehovah God. How, how can we sing the songs of the Lord? And in many ways it's to answer that question that the book of Daniel was written. Because the book of Daniel is the story of a man beginning uh, beginning of the story, uh, as Ken had noted, uh, a teenage boy who, by God's grace, was enabled to sing the Lord's song, to faithfully and confidently bear witness to his saving and keeping God in a hostile place. He was a man who, by God's grace, was able to be diligent and resolutely strong in God's service in a place where the faith of God's people was hard to find. And in a time when the word of God and its power seemed to be minimized at every turn. And for those reasons, it seems to be a story of immense significance for the days in which we are living. And a story for which I trust we'll be able to learn lessons of abiding worth for all of our lives. The reason I believe it's so significant is this, that although this is an historical event about a war between a physical Jerusalem and Babylon, it's really only a part and symbolic of an ongoing struggle that we read about in the scriptures almost from the very beginning all the way through to the end. The struggle between the powers of darkness on the one hand, often represented in the Bible by the name Babylon, and the kingdom of God in this world, often represented by the name Jerusalem. 
And it's a conflict, you may remember, that the book of Revelation tells us persists right until the end of history when Jesus Christ finally and invincibly calls a halt between this conflict between his own kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And there are certain periods of history, epochs uh, in the Bible, just as there are certain periods of history and times beyond the Bible in the history of the church, when it seems that the powers of darkness have managed to silence the cries and snuff out the witness of God's people. When God's people in different ages and in different places are saying with these early exiles in Babylon, how? How can we remain faithful? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in an adverse culture? People won't listen to us. People will despise us and mock us. There's just no point in being bold and faithful in our witness to the Lord because the times are just not right. And this place is simply inappropriate for such boldness and faithfulness. In the story of Daniel, not just in this opening chapter, but throughout this whole book, is the story of a man who from his teenage years, from his teenage years into his 90s, kept singing the Lord's song in a foreign land and was enabled to stand as a consistent and faithful witness to his Lord and Savior. And consequently from him, whatever age we may be, we may be nearer the teenage end of the scale. We may be closer to the 90-year-old age of Daniel's life. But from the whole of his life, every one of us is able to learn lessons about the way in which God shows his power, his preserving grace in the lives of his people and we, and we learn from this chapter particularly that he is able to make us also stand and sing the Lord's song in alien places, in difficult times. And what I want us to look at, uh, I think, is at least three things in this opening chapter that help us to understand how God worked in Daniel's life and enabled Daniel to serve God faithfully in his generation. And the first and perhaps the most obvious thing to notice here is that God preserved and protected Daniel by helping, helping Daniel recognize and realize exactly who was in charge. God was helping Daniel to see his sovereign hand in human history and the, re and the lesson that we're intended to learn is that we're going to remain faithful if we're going to remain faithful to the Lord and if we're going to be faithful witnesses to him, one of the things that we need to recognize is the way in which God is in sovereign control of all the world and in particular the way that he is in control of my personal history. 
And it's interesting to note how Daniel shares this with us because you'll, you'll notice in the opening two verses of chapter one, he tells us about exactly the same incident from two different points of view. In verse one, from the point of view of a secular historian, and in verse two, from the point of view of the person of faith. Look at what he describes from the point of view of the secularist, the one who has no room for God in his observation. He describes simply what happened to God's people, a kind of Joe Friday approach. Just the facts, man. You know, as I just said that, I'm thinking that three quarters of this audience <laughs> has no idea what I'm talking about. He tells us the date in which it happened. It was the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. He tells us the context in which the events took place. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar, the man who stood as the indisputable heavyweight champion of the world, if you will, the head of the greatest empire known to the world, came to Jerusalem, knocked on its door, and demanded to have it. But in verse two, Daniel had not only eyes to see the history from the point of view of secular history, but saw from eyes of divine sovereignty. In the midst of apparent disaster, Daniel said, it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord delivered. And this, for this young man, was the perspective that made all the difference in all of his life. 70 years in exile, he never returned to his home country but he was perpetually sustained in exile by this knowledge that no matter what catastrophe had fallen him or the people of God, God was in sovereign control of their destiny and in sovereign control of Daniel's own destiny, his service, his ministry. And I believe that transformed what would be, what he would be in Babylon and what he would do in Babylon because he recognized that if God was sovereignly in control of all the events of history that surrounded him, then if he had been brought to Babylon with others, it was ultimately God who had designed that he should be there. It was God who had uh, destined this for his place, the place where he was to bloom, where he was to serve the Lord. Gra Daniel grasped hold of this, something that we find so many in Scripture lay hold of the one thing that really makes a difference to a man or woman's service for God in circumstances that seem so inhospitable is the knowledge that God has placed me here. And if God has placed me here, then God intends, me to, intends to use me here for his glory. 
The second thing that we should note is this. God not only helped Daniel to see his own sovereign hand in history, he helped Daniel to recognize the powers of darkness intensifying their activity, that Satan indeed was at work. I said that this was an historical event, but you see one of the things that made Daniel stand out from his companions was the way in which he recognized that there were forces at work behind and in and through this historical event that stretched backward into the depths of history and upwards into the realms of spiritual reality. And he recognized that it wasn't simply a matter of himself on the one hand and Nebuchadnezzar on the other. It was Jerusalem and God's kingdom on the one hand And it was Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and all the powers of darkness seeking to utterly destroy God's kingdom on the other hand. That, of course, was the reason the king of Babylon brought these young people uh, to Babylon and educated them. He was strategic enough to know that by taking the young and the gifted, that very soon Jerusalem would be left leaderless and without direction. And if there was some revolt uh, afterwards, if there were movements to rebel against him back in Judah, they simply wouldn't have the leadership or the strength or the vigor to pull it off. And so this was part of a long-term strategy of the powers of darkness to destroy the influence of God's Jerusalem in the world. And it's interesting to note how that the powers of darkness, those in opposition to God, often operate or sought to operate, particularly here in the lives of Daniel and his companion, because we're told here by Daniel that they employed what amounted to be a threefold strategy that seems to be quite often characteristic of the forces of darkness. Notice what that strategy was. The first was that they sought to induce Daniel by contamination. Look at what verse five says. The king assigned him a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Well, notice what's happening here. They're bringing, they're being brought into uh, the university. They're to be trained by the, the finest uh, professors of Babylon in this greatest empire of the ancient world. In addition to that, they were taken into the intoxicating corridors of power. They were, as it it were, being photographed with the president. They were able to, as young men, to move among the officials of this great empire. And many thought, surely, that they had incredible opportunities. Man, look at this. 
We're among the movers and shakers of this kingdom. At first, they had been discouraged in the exile, away from home, but now they saw the great opportunities. It's better here than back there in the backwaters of uh, Israel and Jerusalem. But the thing that Daniel recognized in the midst of all of this The food and the wine that came from the king's table was not really set before him because of the king's generosity. But it was there to begin to tone down, to dull the sharp-edged consecration that Daniel and his friends had for Jerusalem entered to Jerusalem's King Jehovah and to the people of God and to the ways of God and to the word of God. This was an effort on the part of the powers of darkness to introduce however subtly some corruption, some contamination, some uh, adulteration to the character of Daniel's wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And no doubt, (laughs) some were saying, come on, Daniel, loosen up, man, get a life. This is great. What's wrong with this? And Daniel's reply, as ours should be, was, that's not really the question we should be asking What we should be asking, is there anything right with this? Is it going to prosper the cause of Christ in my life? Is it going, or is it going to dull my taste for the things that really belong to the Lord? Now, I don't need to tell you that you don't need to be taken into exile to face that temptation. You don't have to move at all to know that temptation. In the world in which we live and all of its material, worldly prosperity, all of its lure and leisure and activities, just saying to us, settle down. Settle down. Enjoy the comforts of this semi-good life that you have and submerge yourselves in this world And what is it that we discover? We constantly discover that even if there be nothing innately wrong, that's not really where the issue lies. The real issue lies in all of our activities, in all of our lives, in this question, is this going to blunt my appetite for the things of God? Or am I going to have a keener taste and a greater enjoyment of the worship and the work and the word of God and the fellowship with God's people, of bearing witness to his name? Or am I going to find that my Christian testimony and my spiritual desires are being slowly, we talked about this a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter two, drifting away but definitely toned down and blunted until we find almost mysteriously that we no longer have an appetite that we once had for the things of God. 
I think that is almost frighteningly relevant to us today in the Western world. We Christian people have never been so affluent as we are. We have never been, it seems, in some ways more respectable than we are. But the sad truth about us sometimes is that we have become that salt that Jesus described, which has become tasteless. It's lost its bite and tang and flavor and preserving properties because we have lost our taste because of the contamination of the world in which we live. There was the strategy of contamination, but there was also, in verse 5, the strategy of indoctrination. They were to be trained for three years in the university. After, they, after that, they were to enter the king's service. They were given what we would call full rides, full academic scholarships. They were given every opportunity to learn at the feet of apparently the wisest men in the ancient world. And you see what was in view. It was that over a period of time, there would, ta- there, uh, there would be uh, this slow but sure indoctrination of persistent anti-God thought. But we would be foolish indeed if we, if we thought that Satan had no other tricks up his sleeve, no other way in which he would seek to indoctrinate us, and he does. Let me give you an illustration of that, if I may. You open up the, uh, the magazines, the periodicals. Uh, um, you, you work through the advertisements or sit down and view uh, the television. What is it you're likely to see in just about all the advertisements? Ask yourself, what is the message to which you and your family are constantly being exposed. You know, I think it is. It is essentially two-pronged. Pay very careful attention to what you put into yourself. Make sure that you go to the best places to eat, that you present food in the finest way, that you are sure that you have this product or that product or another way uh, that that is subtly presented, uh, become utterly fascinated with your dietary needs. Become obsessed with your diet, even to the extent that you're obsessed with the diet of your cat or your dog. Because it seems to be half of the advertisements that we see. And the other is largely about appearance. The clothes you wear, how you appear physically. Uh, and that includes, of course, the, the cars you buy and drive and, and find yourselves in. And the advertising gurus know that we are quite anxious, anxious about these things. The satisfying of our appetites and how we appear to others. But wasn't it the Lord Jesus who said to his disciples, my dear disciples, these are two things. Uh, 
that you'll never need to be anxious about, never. The first is the food you ingest into your stomach. And the second is the clothes that you wear on your back because your heavenly father so knows what you need even before you ask him that you never need to be anxious about those two things, but aren't we? So conditioned, so prompted, so indoctrinated that we are anxious for those very things. And you see, this was the very issue that Daniel faced. In his case, it was done openly and publicly in the university and he couldn't avoid it. And we have tried rightly and wisely to defend ourselves and our young people from the same kinds of ungodly influences in the halls of higher learning in establishing Christian schools. But the thing that I think we sometimes fail to do is to see how easily Satan can come behind our back and indoctrinate us into the same kind of worldly anxiety by other means. And it is discouraging to see coming out of the same life among Christian people a disdain for anti-God education that is mixed up with an absorption with a lifestyle that is altogether characteristic of this world. By contrast, Daniel was given grace to recognize this indoctrination and to stand firm. And the third way in which Satan is at work, the powers of darkness sought to bring Daniel down alongside contamination and indoctrination was by confusion of identity. Sound familiar? Confusion of identity. Identity is the significance of the text later in this book, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, where we read that Daniel prayed with his window open to Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? It was to remind himself that though it had been decades since he had seen Jerusalem, it was to Jerusalem that his first loyalty lay. And then after, and then later in the book, when he was almost 90 years old and every other self-respecting civil servant in Babylon is out sunning himself in the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar had brought into being, Daniel was praying. And he tells us in this remarkable statement, he says that while he was praying, God sent a message to him and he says it was about the time of the evening sacrifice. About three o'clock in the afternoon in Jerusalem. Now that was 70 years after he left Jerusalem. He still knew as he looked at that local sundial <laughs> that it was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was time for the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem. You see, Daniel lived in Babylon as though he were a citizen of Jerusalem. Just as God in his word calls us to live on earth as those who are citizens of heaven. And that was the great triumph of his life. 
He knew his identity. He knew whose he was. He knew where he belonged. And because of that, he knew by God's preserving grace how to live for God's glory. And then finally, God helped Daniel recognize his plan would ultimately triumph. It's interesting to note how this chapter ends in verse 21 with the apparently ho-hum words, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That really serves as a bookend of this chapter. The other bookend, verses one and two, is that the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and destroyed it. Left hardly anything of its standing. Took these young men into his own country and was going to destroy them spiritually too through contamination, indoctrination, confusion of identity. And from a purely worldly point of view, everything in this chapter looks as though it's spelling the end for God's people and for God's servants and for wit and God's witness uh, and for the witness to God's glory in this world. But you see how the chapter ends. It ends by telling us that when Nebuchadnezzar was so much dust moldering in a Babylonian grave somewhere, God's servant, Daniel, was still standing, still there, still bearing witness. And when Nebuchadnezzar's ungodly mouth had been ceased for the last time, Daniel's mouth was still open and he was bearing witness to the mighty power in the saving grace of his God. And then there came a day in the area around Babylon when a group of wise men, magi, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked about the king of the Jews whom they had heard perhaps ultimately from Daniel's testimony the king of all kings, the redeemer king would one day be born and whose kingdom one day would fill the whole earth. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in your majesty and mercy, you have your hand upon your children and that you are able to keep us from falling. In those places where you've placed us, you surely mean to keep us, to bless us, to use us there as your witnesses to your glory. So help us, Lord to dare to be faithful to you and to discover that by your grace, you are always faithful to us. We pray in the name of Jesus.
our Lord, our Savior, our King. In his name we pray, amen.